Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning, everyone. On today's show, WNYC's Bahar Ostadan on the EBT scams plaguing many New Yorkers. When you go to use your EBT card at a grocery store for SNAP benefits, you might be at risk of having your card surreptitiously scanned and the money on it drained. We will invite you to help us do the reporting with your stories on the phones, and Bahar will explain how it happens and what can be done about it. We will also have a member of the New York State Assembly who's got a piece of legislation that should help uh, prevent this for the future. Also, we'll continue our series with the makers of the five Oscar-nominated feature-length documentaries. Other people do the hit movies. We do the documentaries. Today, the director of a nominated film from Chile, called The Eternal Memory, about a couple dealing with one partner's Alzheimer's disease that also has a national politics Alzheimer's overlay. And we begin here. Um, Actually, before we begin here, one other thing. On today's show, we will have Charlie Locke on their essay in Vox about why it's sometimes good to have regrets with your calls on how regrets have ever made your life or the world better. But here is where we begin it's our Climate Story of the Week, which we do every Tuesday on the show. And today we have a special guest to mark an anniversary. It was five years ago this month, February 7th, 2019, when New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in office barely a month, introduced the Green New Deal resolution, along with Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts. Here's 30 seconds of that moment, five years and two weeks ago. Today is the day that we truly embark on a comprehensive agenda of economic, social, and racial justice in the United States of America. That's what this agenda is all about. Because climate change, climate change and our environmental challenges are one of the biggest existential threats to our way of life. Not Not just as a nation, but as a world. AOC on February 7th, 2019. So how's it going five years later? With us now for our Climate Story of the Week is Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, whose district covers parts of northwest Queens and eastern parts of the Bronx. We'll talk about the Green New Deal and other things, too. Congresswoman, thanks very much for coming on for this. Welcome back to WNYC. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. You know, so many listeners have heard the term by now from so many lips. Cuomo had a Green New Deal. (laughs) Everybody's got some version of something uh, used in so many ways. I wonder if you would start by doing a reset for us, building on what you said five years ago, and explain how you think listeners should even understand the term Green New Deal today before we discuss how it's going or any debate around it. Of course. Thank you. And I appreciate that. I think and, and it's an excellent question because for a long time, for decades, we've had people talk about environmental policy or climate policy. Um, and there's a central question about what makes Green New Deal policy different than any of those others. And what really, I think, distinguishes Green New Deal style policy is that instead of treating economic growth and environmental protection and and environmental justice and social justice issues as competing interests, Green New Deal policy says climate policy 
is not effective or complete unless it meets three standards. The first is unless it has an aggressive 10-year decarbonization timeline. The second is it must create uh, good union jobs and it must create good high-quality jobs. And the third is that it cannot leave any communities behind in that it must incorporate uh, environmental justice, including social and racial justice components, as well as economic justice components, um, as part of the policy. Uh, too often, we would see climate policy that would do one or the other. It may meet a scientific target, except you would have poor or, or Black and brown communities that do not benefit, um, or the communities that have been exposed to toxic waste, air, water, et cetera, that would be left behind. Or, you know, there would be this, this almost this sense of, of competition between job creation and environmental protection and conservation. And so what Green New Deal policy does is that it is it creates jobs, it centers um, environmental justice communities, and it, it ensures that we meet our climate targets so that we can save the planet. So staying on the history for a minute, and picking up on what you were just saying about good union jobs and social justice components, uh, you probably know there's a book that came out in the fall by Ryan Grimm from The Intercept called The Squad, AOC and the Hope <laughs> of a Political Revolution. And, and he's got an excerpt that I was reading on The Intercept site that includes a description of the competing interests of groups in the Democratic Party coalition as you were preparing the resolution five years ago, such as the NAACP was against a carbon tax or any form of carbon pricing because they thought that would allow rich companies to buy up those rights and continue mm -hmm. to put their polluting plants in black neighborhoods, and a tax would also raise energy prices disproportionately on poor and working class folks. So they wanted a way to eliminate fossil fuels, not tax them. But the mm -hmm. AFL-CIO opposed a call to end fossil fuels because there were so many good jobs in the field. So you had mm -hmm. to thread the needle in various ways, as Ryan Grimm reminds us. So how much on the same page do you think various progressive groups are today around that concept? Oh, I think there's been a sea change. I think that we have made incredible, incredible progress. And a lot of that is in no small part thanks to the advocacy and power of all of the organizing and the energy behind Green New Deal organizing uh, really was a driving force behind the Inflation Reduction Act um, that was that the president signed that Congress passed two years ago, which ended up has ended up becoming and culminating in the largest U.S investment, federal investment to combat climate change in American history. And what that legislation did was that it profoundly realigned the economic incentives to combat climate change. And so you're absolutely correct. Um, there were a tremendous amount of those fault lines, both even within a pro-climate uh, coalition, but generally as well, um, alongside all of these questions. But now, Whereas before there was a lot of debates around carbon taxes and, and the number of jobs in the fossil fuel industry, we have now 
work to even the playing field where there's a tremendous amount of tax incentive for renewable energy and as well as as union job creating renewable energy pro uh, projects made in America projects and more and not only and you know what what those tax incentives do is not only do they incentivize that right kind of production, but they also make it more affordable for everyday people to access. And examples of that are like the EV tax credit or tax credits on heat pumps so that people can update um, and make their their heating much more efficient at a much more affordable price. And so that is actually, it is hard to overstate how much it has realigned the landscape. And previously, where there were folks on the opposite ends of certain climate questions, they've now been aligned to the same side of things as well. And it has done so much to accelerate our, our, our progress in meeting our climate targets. And listeners, we welcome your questions for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the Green New Deal resolution at five years old. A few on other topics are okay, too, as we will branch out a little as well. 212 433 WNYC 212-433-9692. Call or text. Questions, no speeches, please. 212-433-WNYC 433-9692. That, that was really interesting about how different groups, uh, different constituencies have gotten on the same page. Um, so I want to ask you about Biden, his... You know, at first, he didn't even want to use the term Green New Deal, I think, in part to differentiate himself from you when he was running for <laughs> president. But his post-pandemic bill, known as Build Back Better, as you know, was supposed to combine climate provisions with FDR-style New Deal-like provisions like universal pre-K, affordable housing, the expanded child tax credit, more home health aid eligibility and better pay for them. And more, and when it got scaled down into the bill that passed, that you were just referring to, the Inflation Reduction Act, I was actually surprised that the part that survived the most was the climate part, because mm -hmm. I thought all those family-focused items would be popular across party lines out in America. You know, families crave and need all those things. I don't have to tell you, and that climate items would never get past Senator Joe Manchin from coal country, mm -hmm. but exactly the opposite happened. Why do you think it came out the way it did? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One is that, um, you know, of course, we fought so incredibly hard for these family items. The 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 essential nature of the child tax credit and how that transformed not just people's lives, but the entire country. Child poverty was cut in half. It was one of the items that we had fought hardest um, to preserve. But as you mentioned, conservative resistance to it was too high. Um, I think what Republicans saw in that was, um, you know, in their platform of so-called fiscal responsibility, which I don't see what's so fiscally responsible about not uh, cutting child poverty in half and essentially doubling child poverty in the United States. But that's that's a different aside. Um, they, you know, the 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 line items um, and the the so the price tags on those they felt. Um, were too high. And so what we saw as these transformative family investments, and I see them as investments because they generate a profound amount of economic activity, um, did 
did have a lot of resistance. Senator Joe Manchin specifically um, cited his resistance to the child tax credit. I think they they kind of saw it almost as a giveaway um, when you know it 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 really became a, a partisan issue, which. As you noted, I felt it shouldn't have been. I think a lot of people felt it shouldn't have been. But unfortunately, um, Republicans developed this this very rank partisan resistance to some of those items. Um, but when it came to the climate piece, what is interesting is that I think it's it spoke to a couple of things as to why it survived. One is that I think one of the stories of this time that isn't being told enough is how powerful mass movements are getting in the United States. Um, I know there's a lot of doom and gloom out there, but when you think about all of the things that we have accomplished, despite resistance and speculation, not from one, but from both parties, I think we are starting to see really a story of how everyday organizing from Americans are transforming our political landscape, whether the our elected leadership is predisposed to it or not at times. And I think that's the story of what happened with this climate piece. The, the saliency of the climate issue, um, not just when we introduced the Green New Deal, but in general, has become so strong and so animating, uh, particularly among young people. We were having sit-ins, we were having mass arrests, we were having um large protests marches and importantly people were voting on the issue young people were voting on the issue um climate justice communities were asking greater questions about it it became a real point of political pressure so i think a that was a major piece of this but then also secondly um we are also reaching the science you know, no matter where you are in the country, we are starting to see everybody affected by the climate crisis and importantly, everybody recognizing that it's the climate crisis that they are experiencing. Farmers in rural areas are seeing their crop yields drop and they know better than almost anybody else the sensitivities and nuances between how the seasons are changing. They have to count the weeks that they are able um, to harvest the weeks that they are able um, to 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 make sure that they are tracking everything that's going on and they see it themselves. They know something that has to be done. There are communities that are experiencing record flooding in both red states and blue states. And, and there's also industry that knows and understands that the level of investment that we need cannot come from the private sector alone. Um, it must be a public investment to really dramatically transform our infrastructure, create the jobs, create the skill levels and education investments necessary for us to tackle this. And so, you know, that and that was our goal when we first launched the Green New Deal. It was to unite these coalitions. And as we continued to do that, we started to pave the way uh, for this legislation. And when it comes to someone like Joe Manchin, I think there is also just a bit of, you know, we can work as as hard as we can in politics, but then there are just fortuit fortuitous moments, and um, and part of that was when Senator Manchin spiked the Build Back Better bill about six or seven months prior to the Inflation Reduction Act. 
um, there was a profound uh, anger and bitterness in the party. And you don't want to work with someone who is going to, you know, string along our party for a year just, just to kill one of the biggest opportunities the country has had at the last minute. And I think that um, the blowback from it, per, pretend, this is speculative, but I think the blowback mm-hmm. from it might have been unexpected. And um, and it was a moment where we needed an olive branch. It became very clear that we have to do something and we have to do something to help make people's lives better. And I actually think that the pressure from that as well, the commitment to that, um, and frankly, a Democratic Party that was willing to have some teeth um, and not just forget something like that is is actually what created a little bit of enough friction to move us forward. Really interesting take on history. And yet it looks like climate policy will be central to this fall's elections. You know, when we started this climate story of the week that we do every Tuesday on this show uh, at the beginning of 2023, the idea was that there wasn't regular climate coverage because the climate changes slowly, not like the news cycle, you know, in the media traditionally. And yet there was constant climate coverage all over the media in 2023 because there were so many climate-related extreme weather events, right? What a year it was Mm -hmm. grabbing people's attention in some of the ways that you said. And yet Trump said just a few weeks ago that... You remember this? He said he would only act like a dictator on day one in order to do two things, build that wall and drill baby drill. And I think Mm -hmm. that's his authoritarian way of tapping into many Americans' actual fears that aggressive climate policies make energy costs more expensive for years to come, faster than they save people from climate disasters. So would you make that case about cost? Because I think that's going to be important to this election year. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the thing that's important um, for us to remember is that cost volatility is actually um, all about fossil fuel dependency. Um, The more that we are dependent on fossil fuels, it means the more we are dependent on global events, as we saw with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as we see with, um, with, with the choices that come out of the UAE, And uh, as well as many other regions of the world, you know, oil and gas development and drilling in Latin America, as well as in the United States, the more dependent we are um, on oil and gas, the more crazy our prices are going to be and the more up and down our prices are going to be. And the fact that, for example, we have not developed electric or alternative energy vehicles earlier is one of the reasons why we pay such close attention to pr- to gas prices to begin with. And um, we would not be as sensitive to the changes in energy uh, costs if we weren't so fossil fuel dependent. And Donald Trump knows that, the oil and gas industry knows that, and that is why they finance huge parts of our uh, of lobbying our government in order to keep the country entirely dependent on on on, on fossil fuels. Now, if you prefer you know, gas cars and gas stoves, you're free to make that choice. But what we haven't had is accessible and broad choices 
for something else. You know, EVs have been in development, but for a very long time, they've been financially inaccessible to a lot of people in this country. The Inflation Reduction Act uh, helped change that. We got huge tax breaks for both new and used EVs, if you're trying to buy one off your neighbor or whatever that may be, as well as uh, many other things that are accessible, whether it's induction stoves, heat pumps uh, for one's home, et cetera. But the oil and gas industry is deploying all of their political and special interest money towards one central goal, which is to keep virtually every American completely dependent on their product. And Donald Trump is very closely aligned with them. And not only that, but the point, the larger point that you made is that there's actually a, it's not a coincidence that his authoritarian tactics are tied to fossil fuels. This is a global phenomenon. And what we are seeing is authoritarianism is very, very closely linked with oil and gas interests around the world. That's Putin, that's Trump, that's folks like Bolsonaro. That's a lot of the political instability we see out of Saudi Arabia, the UAE. And I, I believe that um, it's, it, it, it is not a coincidence because you have one central industry that has a clear vested uh, pol both political and financial interest and an authoritarian that is also increasingly becoming politically unpopular, by the way. And because the vast majority of Americans believe that the U.S. should start winding down our subsidization of the fossil fuel industry. They want to see clean energy alternatives available to them and financially accessible to them. And they understand that it's it's just more volatile to be so chained to fossil fuels. And so the only way that you can really empower both, both financially a, a political sect um, is through the fossil fuel industry, the oil and gas industry. The Koch brothers are an oil and gas, or the, you know, they who had such large influence on our political system. They come from an oil and gas dynasty, and uh, it, or rather, came. One of them has passed, but um, there's that. But then you see that link crossing across the world, and the ascent of authoritarianism paired with the fact that every single one of them is very closely aligned to the fossil fuel industry and the ascent of the fossil fuel industry is not a coincidence. It's not a mistake. And in fact, the democratization of our energy system, a, which is a means of production that has been privatized and concentrated into the hands of the very few, the democratization of our energy system um, means that people have the potential. We're doing this in Puerto Rico. When you have a battery pack on your house, when the power goes out, you're not as dependent on a central system. You have a you have a backup reserve in case of an emergency. You can you can give energy to your neighbor. This is what the democratization of our energy system looks like. This is also what a fairer economic system that is less volatile for everyday people looks like as well. And that is a direct threat to authoritarianism. It's a direct threat to the extreme concentration of wealth in the hands of very of the very few, but it also represents a shift for the betterment of mankind and our democracy. Such an interesting collection of connections. Uh, one more question on this. 
for the moment, and then we'll take some phone calls. And listeners, if you're just tuning in, my guest is Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the context of our weekly uh, climate story of the week, which we do every Tuesday on this show on the occasion of the fifth anniversary of the Green New Deal resolution being introduced in Congress by her in 2019, along with Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts. And we will also talk about some other things. You know people want to hear you on Young Voters and Biden. You know people want to hear you Mm -hmm. on Gaza. Um, And listeners, 212-433-WNYC with calls or texts if you have a question. But I see that last year, for the fourth anniversary of the resolution, you and Senator Markey released what you called a Green New Deal implementation guide designed to help individuals and communities take best advantage of the Inflation Reduction Act right away. And I'm just curious if you would make that local um, for your actual constituents in your district in Queens and the Bronx and give an example or two, if you have them, of uh, how your own implementation guide can best help them or is already doing so. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. You know, quick plug, if you are, especially if you run a community organization or are interested um, in in some of that work, uh, we have that implementation guide on our website, ocasiocortez.house.gov. And a lot of that, you know, is really inspired by what sometimes the lobbyists do, right? Where you have this big, massive bill and there's all these line items with all these financial opportunities, incentives, et cetera. And they will have folks go in and try to figure out what works and and how um, how you know big companies can take advantage of these bills right away. We don't and haven't historically had that same kind of effort for everyday people, community organizations, even cities and municipalities to say, hey, all this stuff passed in this bill, but you may not know how many opportunities there are in the ways that it can help you. And so our Green New Deal implementation guide does that. It shows all of the grants, all of the tax opportunities, et cetera, that are available to both individuals and and community organizations, municipalities, et cetera, that are interested um, or potentially already eligible for some of the investments in there. There's so many. I mean, I definitely encourage folks to to dig through it and see what's available to them. There are a couple of really exciting things that we've been able to do. Um, We worked uh, in order, we worked to to secure both, not just with the Inflation Reduction Act, but also um, with several other bills that that have passed Congress uh, to get a couple of major investments in New York City. Um, one was that we are receiving this, we've worked so that the city can receive nearly $69 million to transition all of our school buses uh, to electric and low emission school buses, which I can't overstate how important that is for our kids. The Bronx has some of the highest childhood asthma rates in the country and vehicles, especially large vehicle emissions are a big part of that story as to why, not the only part, but a big part. And so um, so switching our New York City school buses to electric when kids are riding in them all day has huge effects both for their health and for the overall air quality of the city. We've got, um, uh, you know, speaking on that piece, we're working on this large visionary project of uh, 
capping the cross Bronx expressway that a lot of Bronx activists and Bronx environmental justice organizations um, are, are starting to mobilize for and demand. It's a major visionary, ambitious project, and they know that and they're going for it. Um, and as their member of Congress, I support them. And um, ensuring that we get the federal grants to start the studies uh, to figure out how we can scope that out and make it happen it has been a big part of our work as well. We've received huge investments uh, to put electric charging stations in Hunts Point. Uh, we are working on a reliable Clean City Queens transmission line uh, with Con Edison. And my goal has always been to show that New York's 14th congressional district can actually lead the country in showing how a clean energy transition centered on the working class um, can, can really be the tip of the spear for the rest of the country. We'll continue in a minute with Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez and your calls and texts, topics in addition to climate as well. Stay with us. Brian Lehrer on WNYC with Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, mostly in the context of our climate story of the week. And we're going to take a pushback call here, Congresswoman, because that's part of what we do here. Of course. Bob in Rye, you're on WNYC. Hello, Bob. Hello, thank you for taking my call. Um, the Congresswoman's uh, list of points of issues tie, trying to t couple uh, fossil fuels with tyranny and despots and all those kinds of things are interesting. is an interesting conspiracy theory, but it's almost as bad as those on the right wing. Correlation does not make causation, and that's what her litany of uh, comments amounts to. Thank you. Thank you. You want to respond? I mean, I, I, I totally hear it um, and heard on the points on correlation uh, versus causation. I think we should, you know, I think it'd be good for us to zoom in on our own democracy. And let's say we put all of these um, other folks aside. If we zoom in on our democracy and we look at, especially since the passage of the Citizens United ruling uh, by the Supreme Court over 10 years ago, um, what that unleashed in our democracy. I think perhaps one thing that, um, that that I'd hope we'd be able to have agreement on is that the role of special interests and big money in U.S. elections is corrosive. And I hope we can at least start there as something that we can all agree on. Money plays way too big a role. Big money plays way too big a role in our elections. And when we look at some of the largest um, sources of where that money comes from, it is not just or only the fossil fuel industry. We also see huge investments from things like big pharma. We see huge investments from, for example, areas of um, of uh, of the housing and real estate industry that is incentivized on keeping prices, rent and mortgage prices uh, very high, banking, et cetera. I think when we look at the, the erosion of our own democracy, we can see how special interests and big money interests have taken and moved our democracy away from everyday voters and, every, and the will of everyday people and towards large industries that are investing in lobbying um, our elected officials. And right. when you look at one of the largest sources of that, fossil fuels is one of them. And I would just say that it's something to consider. 
Another pushback question comes from a listener in a text message uh, on what they refer to as the elephant in the room. She voted no on the infrastructure bill and is now Mm -hmm. taking credit for it. She also just voted no on the recent child tax bill. Your Mm -hmm. response. Mm -hmm. So on the bipartisan infrastructure bill, I think it's important to note that um, I have been supportive of the bill. I was supportive of the bill during the drafting. The reason I voted no is because as representative of New York's 14th congressional district, um, I had to fight for NYCHA. And we had a deal. We had um, we we had a commitment from from the entirety of the party to ensure that we would not leave our NYCHA residents behind, that we would pair Build Back Better with the bipartisan infrastructure law, that we would try to save the Build Back Better bill. And at that time, we have folks in NYCHA that are sleeping without heat, who who still we still were discovering lead in a lot of their apartments. And I had felt at the time that people deserved both both things, that if you wanted this bill to be passed, you were going to get what you wanted, but it, it was going to pass. But if you were one of those folks that were being left behind by that bill and you wanted to see someone stand up for you and fight for you, um, that you merited that representation and deserved that representation so as well. So it was like you felt free to vote against it because you knew it would pass? Well, I think it was both. I think that even if it didn't pass, I felt like we still had the leverage. My my assessment at the time was that I felt like we could still fight for Build Back Better. We needed both of these bills, and we were working for months for both of these b- bills to be linked and to be passed. And I wasn't ready to give up on that at that juncture. I felt like we could get both. Um, Judy, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Did you want to finish an answer? No, no, I felt like off. we could get both. And by the way, Congress still has to act on NYCHA. And I had felt it was our best opportunity um, to date in order to to get the then $40 billion, now much more capital investment necessary to change people's lives out here. Judith in Manhattan, you're on WNYC with Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Hi, Judith. I wish you were mine. And I bless your mother a thousand times for bringing you into the world. You're just wonderful. I oh, wish to you, know Gina. the policy that you have about Gaza. And mm-hmm. I also want to know how is the Democratic Party going to survive with so much anger about the Gaza policy not representing our values in humanity? Judith, thank right. you very much. I, I want to make her question about where you stand on Gaza, um, specific to the moment, if that's okay. And it's Mm -hmm. about what kind of ceasefire you're calling for. I think everybody knows you've been in the ceasefire camp. But right now, many in the protest movement are calling for a permanent ceasefire. Mm -hmm. But there's also a UN proposal said to be coming from the United States that would call for a temporary ceasefire, contingent on all the hostages being released, and that also warns against Israeli action in Rafah that doesn't include real protection for those civilians, which Israel has not announced. So are you for one version or the other of a ceasefire? Well, you know, I think... I want to make sure that we're that we're all kind of on the same page here with these terms, because 
uh, ceasefire is both a legal term, it is a diplomatic term, but at the end of the day, a permanent ceasefire, what that means to folks is a lasting peace. And that is absolutely what I am in support of. Now, folks from a different perspective um, would say, and from a legal perspective would say, ceasefire technically is a diplomatic term for a time where um, where both sides cease hostilities, cease military hostilities as they negotiate the terms of a lasting peace. And so that the term ceasefire de facto is temporary because of the nature of, of that mean. To me, I think that, you know, I don't want to get into the muck of arguing over terms because I think the general principle is the same here, which is that I do believe that we need an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and that we must negotiate the terms and figure out the terms of a lasting peace. Now, to Judith's larger question about our stance here, I am extraordinarily concerned with the Netanyahu government, their opposition to President Biden, open defiance of President Biden, particularly when it comes to the establishment of a Palestinian state. I am highly concerned about the continued indiscriminate bombing of Gazans. I agree with Judith that this is against our values and that this is not what Americans believe in, nor what we signed up for. It's important to also acknowledge completely the horror, the trauma of what happened on October 7th and, um, and the, the complete indiscriminate violence uh, that Hamas had committed. If you are an individual, even, you know, even if you take Netanyahu at his word and says, and where they say that their goal is the complete elimination of Hamas, that is not what this campaign is accomplishing here. Anyway, it, it's not what it's accomplishing here. What it is accomplishing is tens of thousands of innocent Gazans being killed, nearly 70% of whom are women and children. We are seeing a complete a, a, a blockade on humanitarian assistance, food, water. And what I am particularly concerned by is the U.S. role because to a certain extent, Netanyahu, he is he is a head of state of a separate country. But for us and our decisions, you know, there was a proposal recently put uh, passed by the United States Senate that would block UNRWA funding um, entirely, which is the main corridor of humanitarian assistance to Gaza. And um, I it, it we should not be enabling the or even widening the, uh, the the aperture of possibility for an even greater humanitarian disaster and what we're seeing there um, mm. in in Gaza and mm. I think that that we have to get we are getting to a point where um, we can't we 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 cannot participate in this innocent loss of life we can't we can't. In the long run, do you support a two-state solution? I believe so, um, and I I think that it, you know, what I am concerned by is, uh, and I have, I have previously stated that I believe that the current legal regime that we are seeing in Israel, particularly with respect to Palestinians, uh, it uh, amounts to apartheid, and. 
I think that a, a two-state democratic solution um, is, is one that I would support, uh, particularly when what we are seeing in the rhetoric of Netanyahu is, frankly, rhetoric that talks about the complete assimilation of uh, and, and the takeover of Gaza. We see what's happening with settlements in the West Bank. And, um, and I think that what we cannot stand for is, uh, is, all, is for all Palestinians and, and, and Gazans to be subjugated um, under one larger unjust state, uh, which is the rhetoric that Netanyahu is using um, and seems to be what he is insinuating. Part, when, especially both with what he is saying and his outright resistance to President Biden, I, I believe that um, defending uh, the establishment of a Palestinian state is important. I think it is. We are now at the juncture where, you know, I it, it is. While President Biden's words have are are very much appreciated when he discusses that and acknowledges publicly that. Netanyahu and, and Israel has gone too far um, and gone overboard. We need to have American dis- diplomacy and our actions reflect that judgment and that conclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that answer sounds like you're also not on the side of that portion of the protest movement, which calls for the other kind of one state solution, no Jewish state per se, uh, rather one pluralistic state, you're coming out for a two-state solution as opposed to that, if I'm hearing you correctly. Well, ultimately, you know, ultimately, this is about the determination that Israelis and Palestinians make. They are the ones that, whose sovereignty needs to be respected. Um, But I... I, I, the reason I am in favor of a two-state solution is because that is what that sovereignty has uh, determined in the past. Um, and, but I, I don't think it is our role or my role to impose a solution from the United States onto the region. I think we have to respect the sovereignty of the region and support a lasting peace. And at this juncture, that is what a two-state solution, that's what it is in my judgment at this juncture that that's where we're at. Yes. So last question, and it's about President Biden, and then I know you have to go. Um, There's been increased talk recently of whether Biden is actually still the party's best bet to defeat Donald Trump, assuming Trump is the Republican nominee. Part of that is over the loss of faith in Biden um, by a lot of young people, the kind of people who would be in your core constituency, uh, not just your district's core constituency, but, you know, your constituency around the country as a national Mm -hmm. figure um, with respect to the fact that Biden only talks tough but doesn't act tough with respect to Netanyahu. And also just because some people think he's not presenting well anymore and the age issue, fair or not, is going to make him lose. So my simple question is, do you still think Joe Biden is the best Democratic nominee. At, at, yes, you know, and I know some folks, um, you know, when it comes to the response on that and as to why, I think it, I think we need to look at the landscape here. Um, I think, first of all, there's 
there there's the la- the general landscape that we are working in. There's also the point in the process that we are working in. We have Democratic primaries. We have a small D Democratic process of going about this. And, and our Democratic process has yielded a result. And for me, just from starting with just a a due process and a democracy point, I I think it's important to acknowledge that this this is what our democracy has yielded, and respecting our democratic processes um, is it, it, it is part of what determines our nominee. Now, it, I, I understand there may be people of differing opinions. I, of course, believe in primaries. I came to office in a primary. We've had primaries. And when we look at where these concerns uh, largely come are coming from, a lot of them come, you know, it, it's a lot of media figures discussing this, et cetera. But we, I mean, you look at the South Carolina primary, President Biden won with over 90% of the vote. And you had primary challengers in that vote. Um, New Hampshire, President Biden wasn't even on the ballot and he won overwhelmingly through a writing campaign. And so whether we, I think whether any given person, any individual, whether President Biden is their chosen nominee or not, um, uh, or, or is our preferred nominee or not, this is part of, this is what our process has yielded. And when we look at the votes on the ground, we are not seeing a resurgence for someone like Dean Phillips. We are not seeing um, that those similar concerns reflected in the electorate. So I think there's that that first piece. Um, the second piece, you know, especially when it when it comes to what is being made of the age issue, um, I I do think personally, that uh, a lot of it is unfair. Um, You know, yeah, the president might mix up a few words. I've mixed up a few words. He's also handling a war, two impeachment attempts by a rogue party, um, as well as, I I mean, this is probably one of the most challenging times um, in in recent history uh, for our governance in terms of the strain on all of us. Um, But you know, I think it's, listen, I'm, I, and, and I say this as a member of the party, not traditionally in the president's camp. I'm a staunch progressive. Um, a lot, I've spent a lot of the president's first term being a thorn in his side. He didn't want to do student loan forgiveness. We pushed him into forgiving student loans um, for, for, for millions of people in this country, and they're still trying to push more. Um, you know, climate was not top of the agenda. We made it top of the agenda. There are there are grassroots fights that we don't always win, but we are winning really important ones. And um, but I, you know, I've spent most of this term, <laughs> most of my most of his first term being a thorn in his side um, in order to to push and agitate uh, for victories for everyday people and. I think it's important to note that while he is not necessarily predisposed to to always being in agreement with us, he's also movable. And as uh, someone who seeks to elevate 
the power of grassroots movements, uh, a movable target is one that I think uh, it, it is something to consider, um, as opposed to an unknown and a potentially unmovable unknown. Well, I know you got to go. I will just say, as a point of pride, speaking of primaries, uh, we are proud that we had you on before you were famous, when you were a little-known <laughs> activist running against Joe Crowley in a local primary. And yes. And we're glad that you continue to come on and discuss the big issues of, the, of our time with us from time to time. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, thank you for coming on today. Of course. Thank you so much, Brian. Appreciate it. 